And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome again to the Sustainability Story. I'm Matt Orsog with CFA Institute, and our guest today is Ben Yo, Senior Portfolio Manager, Royal Bank of Canada Global Asset Management. Good to see you again, Yo, Ben. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You have a very interesting, I, I think in the title we've, I've, I've written, I don't know if you've agreed yet, uh, but uh, I'm calling you an ESG Renaissance man, if that's okay with you. Fine by me. Call me whatever you like. <laughs> uh, but you have a very interesting uh, background and very interesting stuff you're, you've got going on. So tell us a little, before we jump into the details, tell us a little bit about you, your, your journey in sustainability and how you got here. Sure. So I was born in London, UK, to a Malaysian father and a Singaporean mother. And I did all of my schooling or high schooling in London. And then I went to Cambridge, Harvard, and then back to London. And as an undergraduate, I pretty much specialized in science, kind of neuroscience and behavioral science. And then when I was in America, I tried some of the liberal arts things and did actually a lot more in theater making, poetry, and writing. And then I started my career over 20 years ago now might not quite look like it, but yes, I am losing my hair. Um, 20 years ago now as an analyst in what we call the city of London in terms of doing investment analyst. And I started as a healthcare analyst because that's from my science background. And then around 2002, 2003, there was a lot of work being done in the pharmaceutical industry all around pharmaceuticals to do with access to drugs in Africa, particularly HIV drugs in Africa. And I was very much involved in the multi-stakeholder uh, debate and discussion there where pharmaceuticals were wanting to be seen as part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And there were a lot of supposed hurdles. Well, they were real hurdles, things like parallel importing, patents, pricing, but there were also solutions which a lot of players could see in terms of trying to get that round, in terms of regulation and, and all of that. And we were involved in actually getting a lot of that work kind of done. And the end result was that HIV drugs did end up going through to Africa at cost or very little money on the back of beer trucks and soft drinks trucks going around Africa. So it was one of the kind of early uh, success stories of kind of collaborative engagement uh, around back then, almost 20 years ago. And it, that set me on the path of thinking about how you can have a lot of win-win situations. So when you're looking at kind of extra financial uh, type of things like access to drugs in Africa, that you can have win-win solutions which work for corporates, which work for society, and actually a collaborative engagement getting you across there. So that's where I started a lot of my work in what we now would call uh, an integrated fashion of looking at this. I picked up non-executive work, working for a kind of in ethical investment trust on policy issues, and that kind of kick-started my journey 
on sustainability and thinking about extra financials and investment? So I ask, I, I warned you about this up front. You know, I ask all my guests, you know, to help frame the conversation we're going to have. Is there one number or fact or kind of a series of those that uh, that you've come across that helps frame what we're going to talk about for for our listeners? And so uh, you've warned me that you may ask me some questions back. So I've never been quizzed before on this. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> so what do you what do you got? Yeah, I love data. So this is, uh, and I think investment analysts or portfolio managers at the end, we really do love uh, data. So that's. Uh, um, yeah, worrying question for you. So I have some around uh, life expectancy, literacy rates, which think about social, uh, women's votes, and actually deep poverty. And so let's see how much of this you know yourself. Okay. So life expectancy. Right. Um, in India, in 1950, so kind of a generation ago, in 1950, what was the average statistical life expectancy? Do you think I would be dead? Or alive? Well, I don't know how old you are, but I'm, I'm not, not going <laughs> to. I'm in my forties. I was going to say mid forties. So okay, okay. All right, I'm going to try. I think you'd be dead, but hold on. I think you'd be dead because I'm guessing today life expectancy is probably in the mid to high seventies, low eighties. And I know I remember seeing this in for the U.S. like a hundred years ago. Life expectancy was, you know. Around 50 or something in the US, I can't remember, or like high 40s and 50. So I would be about dead because I'm a little older than you. So I'm going to say India, fifth, 1950, I'm going to say 39. That's super close and good, good line of thinking. So it's 35 in Whoa. 1950 in India. Oh and in India today, it's closer to 70. But you're right, in the US or the UK, you're talking about high high 70s low 80s. Uh, and then yeah. yeah in some places low 80s demographics and, and things right. so the the point of that and the same with the other two is that we've come a long way but actually we've still got further to go so literacy rates so this is thinking really about a form of i guess education or social progress or social capital mm -hmm. uh, we're going to go to portugal okay. and we're going to go around about the same time i have the data for 1960 so 1960 in portugal uh-huh what is the percentage of the population who can read and write? The percentage who are literate in Portugal only in 1960. 1960. This is dangerous because I feel I'm going to be insulting the Portuguese people if I guess too low. <laughs> uh, but this is this is you know, 50 years ago, over 50 years ago. Yeah, developed, you know, European country, fairly rich. I must say two thirds, 60, 66.67%. That, that's pretty close. It's it's sixty percent. Okay. So six out of ten could read and write. Okay. But the amazing thing is, most most people get it wrong at first glance. Is because that means four out of ten people in Portugal in nineteen sixty could not read and write. Right. And of course, today you're over ninety percent. Right. right. So uh, I think you're pretty close to ninety eight, ninety nine percent actually. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, we've come a long way, and people don't expect that in a in a European country. Okay. Okay. Social progress. Women's vote. Okay. I'm going to take you back to 1950 because that's where I have the data. Mm -hmm. uh, what percentage of the world okay. allowed women to vote? And this is percentage countries, really. So what percentage of the world countries allowed women to vote in 1950? Okay. It's only been about 100 years here in the States. Yeah. So I'm going to say 30%. 
It's a bit higher than that. So in 1950, 66% of the world okay. allowed women to vote. I, but that I, did mean the other side. One in three did not allow women to vote. I was, I was, to, I was retrospectively more negative about the world. Yeah, a little bit too negative about, <laughs> about the progress we made. But you're right. So 100 years ago, the, 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 I think the data is pretty close to zero. The countries had just started around right. then. There's, there's right. a few pre-1900, but not very, not very many. And today, it's by countries, it's 98.5%. There's just one nation state holding out. And it's a little bit of a trick question because actually it's the Vatican <laughs> in terms of a nation state. So oh, that's not fair. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> and so the last one, which actually I think is maybe even the heart of all of those, because life expectancy, literacy rates, social progress all go to that, is in 1990, so this is really quite close. So this is just 30 years ago. Yeah. What number, let's go absolute number okay. of the population were in deep poverty, were below the poverty line in 1990 in the world? Global. Global. Okay. Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to go back to my number that was so wrong before for, for, uh, for uh, was it Portugal literacy? No, no. No, that was right. Which one did I say? It was six. Women's vote. Women's vote. Yeah. I'll go back to my 30%. Because I'm going to guess it's it's a little above or a little below that. Or I I don't know as a, as a percentage. Uh, let's do so thirty percent. Oh, the absolute the number. Yeah, the absolute number. So we, we can do it in percentage. Um, I'd have to convert that to uh, the population. What's the population now? About seven billion. Isn't it? Isn't it is it's going to hit ten billion by the end of the the middle of the century? Isn't it? Yeah, but I have to go back to I have to go back to 1990. Yeah, no, I'm trying to work back. Wow, this is a fantastic podcast okay. where you listen yeah. to people do math on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so it was it was five billion in 1990 uh, world population. So 30 percent is 1.5 billion. Yeah. Wow, that you are really good. So that's um, that's almost there. So 1.9 billion. So 1990, 1.9 billion were below the poverty line. Yeah. And I'm just going to fast forward to today. Today, that figure is probably around 600 to 700 million. And I make that point because it really expresses two things. One is that is still, uh, on the one hand, that's unbelievably brilliant. You, right. you, have, you have made 1 billion people in 30 years lifted out of deep poverty. Okay, that's deep poverty. So there's, there's still a lot of sort of normally poor people, but this is kind of below the poverty line. But you still have six or 700 million, which is still a significant, that's still about 9% of today's population, 9, 10%, who are below poverty. <laughs> so you have really decreased that. And so I think my theme here is that we've come a long way, but we have a long way to go. Yeah. But we, we mustn't give up on the fact that we have made progress. I think that's number one. And this applies to actually everyone thinks in terms of extra financial and environment, social governance, sustainability thinking. But it also means we still have a long way to go, right? We, we want that number really to be zero. And there's kind of no theoretical reason why you couldn't get very close uh, to zero, except for the fact that it's getting much, much harder. In fact, the forecasts are that it only, it only has a shallow decline in the next 10 years because it's increasingly hard to get people out of deep poverty. But I think those stats kind of, to me, says a, a lot of the story that we've come a long way, but we've got to look, go a long way further. And we've come a long way in all of the dimensions that we think are important. So you mentioned sustainable development goals. The idea here is that we value more than what might be GDP, call it GDP plus or the wealth of the nation. That's in your social capital, your human capital, your natural capital. And um, we're doing better in terms of women's votes, social capital, life expectancy as well as in things like GDP. 
Wow. No, well, two things. Well, th- that's well, three things actually. That's that's those are very interesting numbers, and I think it, it is great to remind people of the point that you know you can you can despair quite a bit if you're in this world of what's going on with climate. Are we ever going to get to where we need on climate? Natural capital as well has many challenges, but take a step back and look from with the hindsight of history of where we've come and that, you know, we won't get to a perfect utopian society on any of these issues, but we have come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. And there, these goals are achievable. A lot of these ESG sustainability goals are achievable. It's just the, you know, it, it takes policy and will and invest, you know, we're talking to investors and investors to, to, to push, push the needle on these things. The second thing is, I think I've set a horrible precedent that now I'm going to, my guests are going to be expected to, qu- to quiz me. And I'd be fine with that, but I don't know if my guests would be fine with that because I, I think that was fun. Um, and, and three, and this could derail the whole podcast, uh, but it, it made me think about, we talk about demographics and that's something that's, that's, that I'm interested in. And I look at what's, you know, what are, what are projections for demographics around the world in the next 10, 20, 30 years and our, our lifetimes and our children's lifetimes. And, you know, we're, we're likely to hit a peak of population in the world in about two decades time and then slowly go down in, in China and Russia and other large countries. Meanwhile, Nigeria will be, will be exploding. But around the world, uh, we're likely to have a demographic, not crash, but slow, slowly go down that hill. Right, and I think we're going to top out at somewhere projected nine point five, ten billion, somewhere in there, and then by the end of the century, it'll be like eight billion or something like that. My numbers might be wrong, but that's the trajectory we're on. And and my question is, and as, as I said, maybe this is a whole different podcast, so maybe we keep this short, and I'll either have you back or have someone have a demographic specialist on to talk about this this issue. Is William? What does that do? And does that help with sustainability, or does that hinder with sustainability? And we're both people that have spent too much time in finance. And for the, the dominant theory in finance for the past hundreds of years is capitalism. You know, that's what we live under. And capitalism assumes ever-growing markets, ever-growing resources. And it's fascinating to me how capitalism will be challenged and have to change and, adju- and, uh, and adjust over the next 20, 30, 50 years. And what will ev- we even be calling it, you know, during that time. And I know that's a huge topic and, and that, and we didn't really discuss that, but is any thoughts on that before we, before we move on? Sure. Let me try and keep this short because yeah. it has very interesting uh, philosophical roots and I'll, I'll give you both views. Yep. So if you go back really to ancient philosophers, but more recently Malthus, mm-hmm. Malthus, the Malthusian challenge would talk about that is what do you do about growth? Right. And the modern movement of that would actually call themselves degrowth economists and thinkers. And so they would worry about how that growth happens, even though that capitalism has lifted a lot of people out of poverty, they would point to those people still left in poverty. But I think there's two or three interesting things to put on top of that. One is you are likely to, or you seem to be able to be getting what we would call carbon light growth or growth, which is decoupling from the use of natural resources. You can argue about whether we're doing it quick enough. That definitely seems to be a trend. The second thing which you could point to, which is kind of 
interesting from a philosophical point of view is that human beings have made a lot of these challenges, but uniquely human beings are probably going to have to be the ones to solve a lot of these challenges. And if you come to that point of view, then actually we need humans and we need new ideas to solve these challenges. And you can end up in what I would call something called techno-realism. Whereas techno-optimists would say, okay, it's definitely going to be technology which saves you and you get to a kind of utopia. Techno-realists are kind of one stage back where they go, well, look, we have these problems about carbon intensity, we have to decouple, and actually... Some of the ways that we're doing it for things that we want, say food, cement, fertilizer, airplanes, and things like that, have to be done by technological progress. And that will be an intersection between government, state, and private actors. Mm -hmm. And they would generally discount degrowth, one, because Malthus wasn't correct at its time and hasn't been so far, albeit the future could, could be different. And the second is that they would talk about this decoupling that you have. And then the fourth would be, and how do you get those deeply poor out without growth? Now, you could say, yes, if you're in sub-Saharan Africa, you should be allowed to grow. And maybe if you're in some other nations, uh, you, you might not. But they would point to that problem about getting those people out of poverty. And so you can, can you triangulate all of that? And I would err on the side of saying, I think it's possible, right? It's not definitely in the bag. But if you talk about the climate challenge, if you look 10, 20 years ago, and the policy scenarios that we were looking at, we were probably at the median scenario, looking at something like a four degree world, right? Yeah, Give or yeah, take, which yeah. was a been a huge disaster. Today, we're looking at somewhere between a two degree to three degree world right. on central policy scenarios. That is far from great. You're still going to lose huge waves of places which become uninhabitable, and that's still not great. But it is, you have to admit, greater than where we were at four degrees. So we have come quite a long way in 10 or 20 years, even within that. So I think part of this is the fact that we need to have good economic growth, but we do need to try and decouple that from, say, natural capital uh, use, carbon light growth. Maybe people will go, rather than buy fast fashion and, and buy a fashion brand, you'll buy that as an intangible piece of computer digital clothing that you'll wear for your avatar. I don't know, you'll still spend $5,000 on your avatar rather than on a fur coat that ha- might have the same sort of uh, decoupling and signaling. I so, don't know, so- it seems, seems to be happening now. And, and I think those were the two debates about where it's happening. But I remain, I guess, cautiously optimistic. That's what portfolio managers like to say. Yeah, I mean, just as a, as a student of history, and, I, and thank you for bringing up Malthus. Uh, he's one of my favorites just because he seems so negative about the prospects of, of humanity. But that was right around, you know, he, he was, if I remember correctly, you know, he was right around when the, the Industrial Revolution was starting. We had all this oil and coal to supercharge, you know, capitalism. And so it will be very interesting to see how that decoupling changes things. Uh, it doesn't mean capitalism is it real or does it work or has to ch- or it will have to change. But capitalism and high carbon intensive economies have been the norm for the past two hundred or so years. So what does that look like fifty years from now when we're, we're in something else? I don't know. But yeah, that, that's a. I, I don't want to spend all our time on that. It's just a fascinating, fascinating topic. So thank you for thank you for the quiz. I, I may have to add that to the to the podcast now. But before we start diving down into you know more detail, you've been in this sustainability world for a while. 
where have you seen as a portfolio manager, where have you seen us come from? We've already talked a little bit about this. Where are we now and where do you see sustainability going in the future? Sure. So I want to stretch back a little bit further to where I start and then take it from there. Because I, I mean, we touched upon this about Malthus and the long history, say, of capitalism. And I want to go back to the fact that for thousands of years in all human cultures, we had slaves. Mm-hmm. And then about two, 300 years ago, human beings decided that slavery wasn't for us. And now slavery is pretty much outlawed. You can talk about modern slavery and things like that, but slavery is legal. You know, you go back a couple of thousand years ago, you put a price on human life and you traded human life within slavery and you didn't. Uh, You go back to the 1700s, you had objects, you had glassware, you had pots where you had labels and the pots were said, not made by slaves. And that's the roots of the fair trade movement today. Fast forward to women's rights, which we've talked about. Women couldn't vote 100 years ago. They now can vote. Great social progress within that. So you have this fast forward about the social change movements, which seem impossible at the time. You ask someone in 1650, do you think we would ever not have slaves? I'm guessing 99% of people would say, you'd be crazy. We've had slaves for 4,000 years. Why Our whole economy would disappear. Why, why, why would that be possible? And yet, and yet it was. So fast forward to the 1950s, and you had a lot of movements, I guess, from faith-based and other investors thinking about a kind of ethical or value-based judgment about how they would want to invest. They just wanted their investments to reflect their mission and values. And then you fast forward kind of into uh, the 1980s, 1990s. You had thinkers like Milton Friedman come along, thinking about markets and capitalism in that respect. And then 1990s, you started thinking about triple bottom line, a lot of talk about people, planet, profits, all three going together. And then you had the birth of what we're calling environment, social governance, ESG. So that kind of takes us to where I started, where actually ESG wasn't yet a term uh, in terms of where we started, but we started thinking about how these extra financial matters could affect long-term value. And I guess this is where you had the initial bifurcation between what we might call value and values. So you had a lot of people who were still thinking about it from an ethical lens, but you started to think about it a lot of people who thought, well, actually, there might be a lot of circumstances where if you do good by your customers, if you do good by your employers, employees, if you don't have environmental spillages, if you had good relationships with your regulators, you would create long-term value. And so a lot of people like today can talk about stakeholder capitalism or enlightened shareholder value, or you don't even have to produce the ESG terms. You just go, well, I'm looking about where long-term value is. And by serving my customers and by not having a good relationship with regulators, you're going to get um, a lot of value. And so a lot of the debate today, today now is around that. What is material to long-term value creation? what might be value and and what might be values. And uh, I think there's a lot of debate around that. Um, I think I did want to pick up on two or three other things which have changed. And this is in the nature of fund management itself. So again, if you go back 50 years ago, you did not have what we would call passive index funds or rules-based tilted funds or quantitative funds. And so that has changed the nature of stewardship, voting, and what we would call active ownership. So how to use your vote. But this idea of stewardship or active ownership actually goes back 
hundreds of years. In the 1920s, Benjamin Graham talked about being an activist shareholder and essentially saying, if you feel that corporates have a poor policy, you should vote against management and you should be active. And he famously was an activist uh, investor himself. But the nature of that has changed and quantitative techniques and things like that. And then the other side on the value side, the kind of ethical or philanthropy side of arms, has launched what we might now call today impact investing or impact charity. So this is the idea of trying to measure to some extent the impact you're having on the world. And I think this is a very interesting idea, which is rolled into what we're now talking about in terms of ESG and mainstream investment as well, but also have its roots when you're thinking about extra financial or non-financial. And I think the philosophical movement here, which is really interesting, um, I would call long-termism and also effective altruism. So in the way that this is a kind of philosophical roots in terms of John Stuart Mill, even pieces like human, things like that, about how to do the most good in the world. And that's a kind of another interesting arm away from pure financial returns, which is really influencing how to give an impact. And that impact is then influencing those who have a financial return as well in what we call mainstream integrated ESG. That was a very succinct summary. I think that was that got us in discussions I have I've had on the topic. I haven't heard things go back hundreds of years, but it's interesting to think about it that way. You know, when you have things labeled of as not made by a slave, the the conversations that I've had on the in, and listened to on this topic usually go back to apartheid. You know, in the late '80s, early '90s, as a start, of kind of the modern focusing on governance, focusing on ESG. Uh, you know, it was, it was SRI back then, social responsible investing. But when you when you stop and think about it, it's much, much. It goes back much, much longer than that. Much, much longer. And I think I make that point because markets are driven by humans. They're not driven by animals, and they're not driven by plants. You could call it an intersubjective construct. They have value to humans because humans believe in them. And a lot of these market constructs going back even to the early days of thinking about capitalism, like Adam Smith and the like, have always had this uh, this component about what humans believe as important and what they believe is important in the future. And in fact, talking about the long history, the, the early capitalists, so around the times of Adam Smith, if you think about what they were they were articulating, I have an anecdote here, which is actually one which is told by Emrita Sen, who is a developmental economist, a Nobel Prize winner. And in his reading of the early capitalists, he said, well, imagine you are being chased down the street by someone who kind of wants to mug you or kill you for whatever reason. They want they want your money. They don't like the look of you. They're, they're coming down the street at you. But what happens is that before they get to you, money rains down in the street. You have coins which you can collect, and there's notes of value there. They stop chasing you, and in their own self-interest, they go and collect the money. Early capitalists believe that by directing self-interest to something like money, you would direct humans away from their more violent and base urges. And so for to them, early capitalists, it was a way for actually fostering a kind of self-interest or interest in money away from what they would view as bad behaviors and to something where you could systemically have good 
behaviors. And I, I think that's very interesting in the thinking about that, but it was still very much constructed around how we would use markets essentially for the values that humans find important. And that's why I think the modern day debates around ESG and all of these have these roots much deeper in history than we would acknowledge. And you can actually find this by reading Adam Smith, who you kind of think is the godfather of capitalism. He's also the godfather of thinking around about this social value of markets. All right. Well, now we're going to get into the Renaissance man part of the uh, the conversation. And let's talk about, first of all, something that started a couple of years ago, started by the UK Society, the UK CFA Society, is this certificate in ESG investing that you've been participating in. And now it's part of the CFA Institute and it's global. And people are taking the exam and, and getting their certificate in ESG investing. So tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved. You've written the same chapter and updated a couple of times. And I think broadly kind of, and I've seen past 10, 15 years, I'm sure you have as well, just the need for more and better education around ESG and how the, the ESG certificate is fulfilling that and, and how you see the state of ESG education in our financial world. Sure. So we built on the work, for instance, that the PRI, Principles of Responsible Investment, did with you guys at the CFA, doing ESG case studies and the like. And we realized here in the UK, driven by the society, that we needed more ESG education. There was a cluster of, we would call it consensus techniques that a lot of practitioners were using in an integrated ESG fashion without any value assignment for saying, you know, are these good techniques? You know, will they definitely produce better risk return or not? But are these techniques that investor practitioners are using in much the same way that in the early days of value investing, you know, you would say, well, these are techniques that value investors use. There was still a huge debate as to, are you going to get better risk return by a values process or, you know, cheap price to earnings or something like that. So we formed a consensus as to what the techniques are. And we went out to a lot of investment practitioners uh, around as to, well, what is the consensus of these type of techniques? The first half of the book was a lot of more of the basic terminology, you know, how does governance work, stewardship work, what might you mean by an environmental factor or a social factor? And then my chapter and Jason Mitchell's chapter on portfolio management about what were the techniques that uh, people use. And we were very interested in trying to get to specific questions. So there's a lot of talk about this blob called ESG. Does it work? Does it not? It's a very unhelpful question because the blob of ESG, I think you said it yourself, there is in, in some way, there's no such thing as ESG investing. It's kind right. of a meaningless term. You're just using it as a catch-all uh, right. to say, this is something you're interested in. It's almost the same as saying, are you a value investor? Well, you, the next question is what sort of value investor, right? Because right? actually a value to invest in today is almost meaningless um, as well. So we looked at that and we, you know, specific questions, for instance, looking at Alex Edmonds' work on the fact that if you have happy and engaged employees, you seem to get better company return metrics and stock return metrics. Uh, we looked at how to look at in extra financial factors, how people embedding it in their valuations, looking in terms of intangibles and competitive dynamics. Uh, we looked at it in terms of portfolio management, different scores, uh, how quantitative managers were all looking about this. And we gave people the kind of techniques that investment practitioners were doing in order to try and help their investment process. And you can go back to the roots that investors disagree at the moment, whether you can get value from active managers over passive managers. People disagree about what sort of passive management you would do. There is a lot of investment debate around how to invest generally. 
ESG is part of that debate, and we wanted to kind of say, well, these are a set of consensus techniques that people are using, and then you can decide for yourself which techniques you think are useful, which are maybe less useful, which would be useful for your own investment belief and processes. And that's how it came about. I've seen just talking to people and, and looking on LinkedIn and hearing from people just in, in our world and here internally at CF Institute, it seems to be quite successful. Uh, and I'm heartened that that the education we see, you know, and you mentioned about five or six years ago, we partnered, CF Institute partnered with PRI on a number of papers around ESG integration, and we asked you to do one of our case studies, and that's how we first met. And we went around the world and talked to people about what they didn't didn't understand around ESG, what was the current state of ESG, where they were from, from Toronto to Sydney to Sao Paulo to London and everywhere in, in between. And one of the big things I saw was the huge gap in ESG education and demand from clients to get up to speed and then in supply of folks like yourself at firms like RBC and other places that really had a good grounding in sustainability ESG. And I think this curriculum and, and others as well is doing a lot of great work in, in getting folks up to speed on that. I've looked through it. I've read it myself. It's very, you know, very rigorous. I'm unfortunate enough to have taken the CFA exams and the amount of rigor and the amount of time you have to spend on it is about the same for the for what it is. You know, it's like people have joked that it's CFA level four because it's kind of the same the same amount of study. And I, now the CFA UK Society is coming out with a a climate they just came out with something similar on climate, and I've read that as well. And I would argue it's it's actually too rigorous. There were things in it I was like, you know, this chapter is 150 pages long. <laughs> you've got to, you've got to, you've got to cut out cut out some stuff. But but there for anyone interested in really diving into this stuff, I think they're a great resource. Yeah, I, I would say you can buy the textbook from your favorite online retailer to have a look. And I do think we aimed quite a lot of the material at below CFA level one to some extent, so mm -hmm. uh, an introductory part. But you're right, the portfolio management techniques that Jason Mitchell and I talk about are in some ways very advanced. Not all portfolio yeah. managers uh, would use them. So it's a very interesting blend. Uh, I would say, though, that you can look at this work even before you've done CFA level one, two, and oh, yeah. three, because it takes you all the way uh, all the way through it. And I think the other thing to highlight is we were quite good at involving other asset classes because a lot of people just think of equities. Right. But we, we talked about debt, bonds, government bonds, and we don't talk about it that much, but we allude to uh, property, real estate, VC, private markets, which are now all deeply ensconced in their own expressions of how to integrate a lot of these extra financial factors. And I think that's uh, that's really positive, right? If you're a believer in markets, which I am, then actually uh, new techniques, new competition, new debate is all very healthy for this. Yeah, agreed. All right, now let's get into uh, your day job. As a portfolio manager, you know how do you see the ESG sustainability landscape and how do you integrate it into what you do? So I'm a deep fundamental portfolio manager. So we always deal with the fundamentals of a company. And it happens that when you're thinking about the fundamentals of a company, many, many of those drivers are extra financial. How you are dealing with your customers, your right. relationship with your regulators, with your suppliers. And how we look at it is if you overborrow from one of those sources of extra financial capital, you tend to end up destroying long-term value. Hmm. You know, you treat your employees badly, they yeah. leave you. 
you get a bad glass door reputation, you're not hiring back. So that's a destruction of long-term value. But if you can see that's true on the risk side, call it an extra financial liability, which is not on the balance sheet, Right. You can see that it's probably true on the asset side as well. So if you invest in your own people, you invest in the future, you have a good relationship with your suppliers and regulators, you're creating an asset and value. It's really interesting that this intersects with a lot of work on what people would so-called intangibles. So even if you don't use the phrase ESG or extra financials, you call a lot of this stuff intangibles. Right. And economists at the same time, and there's some very interesting work, for instance, by Jonathan Haskell and Stian Westlake. Jonathan Haskell sits on the Bank of England committee, like the Fed committee for selling interest rates. And Stian Westlake is a longtime innovation economist. They've done a lot of work about how the value of a business and the value of the economy today is increasingly, if not majority, intangible. And a lot of that is human capital and ideas. So that comes through to the fact that these are assets. And they're not reported very well in the annual report, partly because it's hard to quantify and partly because this is not how our frameworks have come about, which is very useful for getting around the efficient market hypothesis, right? Because if it's all really neatly explained, as you'll know in CFA 1, 2, or 3, I don't remember which part of the syllabus it comes in anymore. But the fact that this information is not that efficient allows you to get better risk and return. Coming back to me as a portfolio manager, so the first thing you're really doing, whether you're looking at extra financials or not, is what are the core drivers and risks for the long-term prospects of that business? And you really want to try and hone down on those, to use our parlance, material, right? What are the really important drivers? And you want to ignore the ones which aren't that important and look at the ones which are really important. And actually, again, even your old school fund manager would say, well, that's exactly what we do. We wanted to disregard the stuff which is not important. Mm -hmm. So we're probably not important for natural resource use or water stress for a financial services company. But actually, we knew if we were a drinks company in Africa using those sort of resources, then how you're managing your supply chain or your natural resources would be really important for us. So you're looking at what we call materiality for how strong or good the company is. And then we will come up with a judgment about the strength of that company. And then we will embed it in the valuation how these things affect long-term cash flows. Some people actually also like to do it in discount rates and the like. We personally prefer to do it in terms of how this is affecting long-term cash flows because at the end of the day, the discount for your cash flows back is how you're going to value a company. That's a great transition into the, the next thing we wanted to talk about is getting those standards for that data around the world is really you know, kind of at the, at, the, at, the, at the apex of that, those efforts you know, as we're speaking now. The SEC just came out with their proposals for, for required uh, climate disclosures uh, a little over a month ago. The ISSB, International Sustainability Standards Board, uh, did something similar. I'm in the, in the middle of writing our response to the SEC, our comment letter uh, as we speak. After we talk, I've got to go up to my desk and, and do some more on that. ISSB, that's due at the end of May. We're talking in late April, 2022. The ISSB deadline, I think, is mid-July. Add to that the folks at the TNFE, TNFD Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures have put out the, kind of their first guidebook for their natural capital disclosures they want to do that is similar in, in structure to the TCFD for climate. I know I'm throwing out way too many acronyms here, and that there's no deadline for that, but it's kind of a rolling comments if you if you want to get to them. But my point is that we're at you know the height of trying to put some numbers and some structure 
to these standards on what is material, whether it's climate or natural capital. And Europe has been at the forefront of this, you know, more so than other parts of the world. And so as uh, someone who's involved in this and, and closer to what's going on in Europe, what are your thoughts on where we are and all these efforts and are we getting to where we need to be? So let's start with SEC and climate and use that as a lens. And I will start with the, how to put it, the opposing arguments, which I think are probably best expressed by Hester Pierce, one of the SEC commissioners who dissents from this idea. Right. And you have to go back to her original source material, but from what I'm seeing, she sort of claims two matters. One is where climate is material, companies should be disclosing this anyway. Therefore, these regulations are unnecessary. Mm -hmm. That's her sort of first line of argument. And her second line of argument is that the SEC is not an environmental regulator, so it's overstepping its regulatory mark. Those, those are broadly, I think, the strongest arguments on the other side. Now, on her first argument saying that these, if they are material, they should be disclosed, I have a little bit of sympathy for that because I think that is true. If this is material, then you should be disclosing these, this kind of information. Mm -hmm. But there's two problems with it. One is the fact that some companies are not. So to the extent that we have better regulation that would force that from the point of view of investors, that is going to be helpful. So on the one hand, I agree that if it's material, it should be being disclosed. But actually, you can see from market practice that there is a lacuna there. There is a little bit of a hole. The second part of the argument, though, is kind of interesting that it's a little bit different. And that is that even if for one small company that you could maybe make an argument that some sort of climate disclosure is not super material for that company, which we can debate whether that's going to be true of any company. But say you had that argument and you bought that. You would fail if you say adding up all of the largest 2,000 companies in America, you would definitely say that was systematically important. Right. And this is an interesting second leg of where you see it from, for instance, uh, Commissioner Gensler and the arguments that he makes, that that is then going to be interesting to investors, particularly, for instance, investors who hold all 2,000 companies in the US, largest 2,000 companies. They will need to have this information in order to make a materiality judgment on that systems basis. And I think that's a, a slightly newer argument that we've heard, and that also kind of goes back to what we're talking about, about the fact that in my work, and I think the work of a lot of asset managers today very interested in this, revolves around active stewardship, how you use your vote and how you use your engagement. Because particularly in what we would call secondary equities, so when I'm buying and selling shares with another counterparty, but not raising any new equity or debt, right. engagement and stewardship is one of the main ways that we make a difference in the real world. And if we don't have the information to base our engagements on, then we're not going to be able to do that as effectively, whether you are a deep fundamental active manager like myself or a large tilted quantitative or, or passive manager. So I think it is really important. And I think it's going to be increasingly important to have that baseline level of disclosure. And then actually, this is where whether you're a markets leaning person or a policy regulation leaning person, the markets can do their job when they have the information of which there is a consensus agreement on that. 
Now, some would say, yes, material, you're meant to have this information, but you can tell from market practitioners, we don't have this information. And so therefore, I think it would be an important disclosure to do. And this is where it's closing the loop on the fact that I think in the future, already today, but to definitely in the future, this active ownership stewardship piece is going to be increasingly important. And to the type of asset owners that I speak to in the institutional land, that's already important now and growing. But I think the person in the street, the woman in the street is increasingly interested in how their money is being managed in this fashion as well. So I think this is likely to be a long-term trend. No, I would agree. Uh, and I think we're also in the... Um in a very interesting kind of nascent stage of, well, what does that mean when you say ESG or an ESG fund or sustainable fund or sustainable investing? I think you know, the moment we're in now, there's a lot of greenwashing out there, whether it's for products or whether it's for, you know, companies report, you know, reporting. And I think a lot of it gets back to just education, not just for us in, in our world, but for the consumer or for the regulator, or for the company. You know, what does it mean to be quote unquote green or sustainable? We're still working around that language of what that means from the woman on the street who wants to buy a fund that does, does well by doing good. Okay, but how do you do that? You can't just buy something that is labeled green. You know, there's the CFA Institute put out standards on, um, on um, sustainable or ESG labeling for funds that came out last year. The SFRD in the in the uh, in Europe is doing the same, and so I think if we're having this conversation five years from now, there'll be a much better understanding, not just in our industry, but from the person on the street, from the policymaker, from issuers, corporates, about there's more agreement about when we say sustainability or we say ESG, what that means, because there will be. The standards from the EU or the SEC or the ISSB, or it will be, it will have been baked into policy for for X number of years. So I think this is a, you know, ESG and sustainability is a cultural change in our industry, but also beyond that, in society, and 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 that's going to be a, a messy proposition in, in some cases. Yeah. So I I would make an analogy with actually typical financial rhetoric. So you've always had a problem with corporate puff. Corporates, everyone wants to put their best foot forward. And sometimes you overstate that. And right. that's why you have advertising standards, because sometimes it's such an overstatement that you need to, uh, that you need to retract it. I do think that institutional owners in some ways should know better. They should be able to know whether something's going, say, dark brown to light brown, whether that's good, whether they could go dark brown to light green, right. and not necessarily need uh, a taxonomy for them to sophisticatedly uh, um, figure that out. I think on the retail or the person in the street, uh, there is a lot more need for that. But if you think about it, what does it mean to say if you are a value investor? You know, is Warren Buffett a value investor? Does that mean if you're a value investor, you never buy anything which is overvalued? Does that mean you never buy anything which is below a PE of a certain type or right. a certain thing? And if you're a sustainability investor, does that mean you, does anyone ever want to buy anything which is unsustainable? Does anyone ever want to buy anything which is overvalued? Right. If you take the counterfactuals of those terms, so right. I do think we need uh, a, a lot more, but I think there needs to be a sophisticating in the judgment, and that actually goes back to your earlier question on the data. So I think we need a lot more 
uh, disclosure, and I think standardization will help. But actually, data in and itself is also not going to solve the problem. And I sometimes worry a little bit that you have some people saying, we'll have all of this data and our problem will be solved. Well, actually, there's a twofold thing to that because you still need analysis of the data. And actually, sometimes the lack of data doesn't stop you from knowing what's the correct thing of doing of what you should do. So on the one hand, you also don't want to let a lack of data stop having good strategies and creating value. And on the other hand, so you don't want to wait sometimes for, the, for that data to come through. And on the other hand, a lot of the data might be contested, particularly if you look at the scenario analysis or the things like that. And we'll still need, we'll still need analysis, right? So you don't want to sort of say, oh, you know what? We've got all of this data. Uh, ISSB has done its job. The regulator's done its job. Uh, and we have it. That's a little bit like saying, well, now I know the return on equity is 8.4%. Great. Job done. Well, what has that told you? Uh, and even if I tell you my carbon scopes, and even if that's audited to some degree, the fact that I've got, say, 30 tons per million carbon intensity, what, what does that tell you? Where am I going? What does that mean? What's your scope three? How does that work in your strategy? Where are you in the world? Data is only a piece of the problem. It's a really important piece, and I think we do need to work on that. So I don't want to take away from any of that. But if you think that is definitively the end of the journey, then we're also going to be in trouble. Yeah, it's in what we've been talking about so far. That has to, that data that we hope you know that we will be getting in in some better way over the next you know three to five years, whatever that ends up being. That has to be coupled with the education we're talking about, with solid analysis. You know, they have to go. Data with no analysis is useless, and analysis with no data is useless. They go to, they go they go together. Exactly. And actually, the analogy might be that we're going to need private actors and we're going to need government policy. You. You can't have one without the other. And I think, you know, you can be working on them separately, uh, but you want both tools, right? And actually, you'll also want non-government actors as well, NGOs and the like. And I mean, traditionally, the classical model has been governments, NGOs, private actors, and they each have domain expertise and they also coincide and they're all looking about creating long-term value or long-term wealth, however you want to define it. And I think that still holds. Each is going to have to play it's part in being part of the solution and not part of the problem. And companies will not be able to act without supportive government policy and, and NGO and the like. Government policy itself is also not going to get you there without corporate actors also playing their part. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Well, now we've we've gone through the uh, everything in the uh, Ben Yo Renaissance ESU Renaissance Man portfolio, except Ben Yo Playwright. Can you tell us a little bit about how being a playwright intersects with with uh, the ESG world and a little bit about your journey there? Sure. So I was really interested in theatre all the way from school as a teenager, high school, and then did more theatre work at Cambridge, although that wasn't part of my degree. And then at Harvard, as part of the liberal arts training, did a lot more training in terms of dramaturgy, writing, poetry, and the like. And I guess part of my own personal theory of change is that stories and arts and culture really matter. They matter because, for instance, the stories we told ourselves around slavery, the stories we told ourselves around women's rights were absolutely key for those social change movements. And if you think about the things that humans value, yes, there are a lot of our tangible things like having enough to eat and things like that. But they are also things that we do, for instance, in our leisure. 
in arts and in culture. And in some ways, those are the things, those are the very things that we try and defend when we're looking about growing the wealth of a nation. And in some ways, those are the things which are very hard and are often not put into GDP, but are really important to us. And so I've been intersectional and having that, uh, that I feel that driving that type of change is important. It's also important in terms of equity. We have a feeling of the voices that are not heard. Yes, that's true in terms of diversity inclusion amongst our sector and in, in generally, but it's also true that the stories that we tell ourselves. And for instance, you know, today, depending on how you define it, anywhere between 10 to 20% of the world has some form of disability. They are not how you'd view a typical person. We need to hear about the equity there, their stories, what makes them human. And I think that's a really important part of what makes uh, investors real in the real world. In terms of my latest work, in terms of, of this, uh, I host my own personal podcast around some of these type of things, around arts and culture, as, as well as in investing. And I, I recently done a line of work, which we call uh, performance lectures, which you kind of cross a little bit of lecture and data with story and art and things like that. So I've done one around the topic of death, how we die today versus two or 300 years ago, what are our actual major causes of death, uh, and then some of the causal things we might think of that we do or don't die from, like, do we really die from grief? You know, how 300 years ago, you know, people said that you did die from grief. Do we die from grief today? And, and things like that. Uh, and I've also actually done one around uh, thinking around sustainability and climate. Again, trying to put all of these things together about what we might do or both on systems and a personal level for all of the intersectional entity and that. And that's part of the wider work I feel in terms of being impactful, talking about what we do, how we can have better ideas and being pluralist about getting people in the room who want to point in the same direction. You know, we want human beings to be wealthier and better, living longer and having all of these, uh, all of these things. But what are the actual changes that we can happen to do that? And arts and culture is, I think, a really important part of that. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I, I called this podcast a sustainability story for a reason, because I, I, I think of myself as a story, a storyteller. I love stories. I've always loved stories my whole life. And I think it's a underappreciated part of really any, any, any endeavor you're, you're involved in. You know, we are the stories that we tell ourselves. You know, we we tell ourselves the stories of our tribe, whatever that is, our nation, whatever that is, our sports teams we follow, whatever that is. You know, you're, you think about if you're a Yankees fan or a Chelsea fan, all the stories you talk about of, you know, what that means going back all those years and, and really anything in your life and the personal relationships you have all the stories but you have when you get together with friends you haven't seen for five years, you know, you, you're, you come and you recount the stories that give that friendship meaning. And it's not different whether you're talking about a market or investing, you know, there's stories behind all these companies. They're not just numbers on a spreadsheet. I exactly agree. And, you know, had we told ourselves different stories, we would not be at war today. The stories that have gone into right. some of these things are being uniquely influential. And that's been throughout the whole of human history, not just now. And that's why I think it's critically important. If you look at these 
talking about some of the major causes of death in our lifetime. We call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse for a reason. So once you've got around death, we've had pandemics, we've had famine, and we've had war. These are not human inevitabilities. And depending on the stories we tell ourselves, how we work together, and what we're going to do in the future will really depend on the course of human trajectory about what we do. And, and I think stories and ideas will be extremely important in the future to come. Well, that's, I think that's a great way to end things. But before we let you go, before we let our listeners go, you know, what are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you watching that you think our listeners might be interested in that kind of, kind of help them dig deeper on some of these topics or, or something unrelated, unrelated to what we've talked about that you think you, uh, you want to share with them? Sure. So I read an awful lot. Uh, I read a lot of books at the same time. I also don't always finish books uh, nowadays. That's one of the changes to, to, from me versus 20 years ago. Sometimes you get the key idea or it's flabby. Uh, I don't think you have to finish all books. Um, having said all of that, I am currently reading Lydia Davis. She is an exceptional American short fiction writer and also essayist. Some of her short stories are only a paragraph long, and she has really put the whole form of stories and storytelling on another level in terms of what she's done. So interesting form as well as interesting stories. Right. In terms of theater, I'm actually rereading. So I actually have hundreds of plays sitting in my home library, but I'm rereading UNESCO's uh, Rhinoceros. And so this is an absurdist story where essentially everyone turns into rhinos. And this is kind of really interesting because it's a sort of commentary on mass delusions or on delusions, but it, depending on which side of the fence you are on, you can actually often apply it to either side of the fence. So right. it's a really beautiful universal story because often you think the person who disagrees with you is having the mass delusion. So I think it's even greater than, uh, than where it is. So people talk about uh, UNESCO's rhinoceros and they use it in their favor. And then I can think, well, you know what? People, people would have thought that earlier, you know, like our earlier conversation on slavery. Right. I think before it happened, people would have thought you're really deluded to ever think that we wouldn't have slaves. And now today, you, we would think you're deluded the other way around. So it's got great resonance in an absurdist manner. And then in terms of economics, I'm also rereading Albert Hirschman's uh, Voice Exit Loyalty he was an amazing economic and political economic uh, thinker. And I, I reread this uh, quite a lot because Voice Exit Loyalty talks about the difficulties of essentially whether you engage or whether you divest, but not just in terms of investments, but every decision you might have in your life, where you work, how you might view your relationships and all of those things. And you can always, you know, you've always got this a choice let's say in a relationship say it's a friendship and for whatever reason you haven't spoken or you've had a disagreement do you put the work in it and try and change it for the better right or do you walk away and say look this isn't this is no longer for me and that and those are always your two choices do you use your voice or do you exit and it's actually a thin book and it's been very influential in people's thinkings and he writes really well about it and then my last one that I've almost finished reading, so I'm going to finish the whole book, and I really recommend, is it's called Letters to My Weird Sisters by Joanne Limburg. And she is autistic, and she talks about historical female figures who have some of the traits that you might think about in terms of autism. But it's really intersectional about thinking about female figures, thinking about otherness, different ways of thinking, and inclusiveness. 
and what it and what it really means to be human today. Uh, it's extremely erudite and has really changed or changed my thinking, at least opened my eyes to thinking about through both the gender lens, but through an otherness lens, and then through history about what it means to be human. So that's another book I would recommend to change your mind about something. Great. Ben, as always, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for the conversation, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you.